This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur. Today, my guest is best-selling author Joy Jordan Lake, whose historical mystery, A Bend of Light, drops readers into a quiet coastal village five years after post-World War II America, where the secrets of the past and present collide. Amy Stilwell, a photo interpreter for an allied unit in England, returns to her hometown in Maine. Jobless and discouraged, but stubbornly resourceful, she moves in with Shibby Travis, the surrogate mother with whom Amy never lost touch. There, the unexpected also awaits her. It begins with a silent, abandoned boy who's found with a note from a stranger pleading that he be watched over. Amy and Shibby take him in, but the mysteries multiply when a Boston socialite is found dead in a nearby barn and an old friend, believed to be a casualty of war, suddenly reappears. Trained to see what others cannot, to scan for clues and to expose enemies, Amy uses her skills to protect the child, solve a crime, and find the motive behind a veteran's masquerade. Through the hazy filter of a town's secrets, Amy must also confront her own painful past. Joy and I discuss the historical and geographic research that went into her novel, as well as those friendships near and dear to her that helped her create the characters in her wonderful, heartfelt book. I just want to tell you how much I enjoyed this book. Even the title, A Bend of Light, sang to me. And I think I know where it came from, but I'd like you to explain that. Oh, I love that you asked about that. Um, we were, you know, I think I just, I knew the, the title wouldn't stick. The working title was just Pelican Cove, the town where the novel takes place. And I knew that wouldn't stick, but that was something to work with. And so I was kind of, you know, looking all along for what, might be something better and more intriguing. And it was in reading about photography from that era, from 1950, late 1940s, 50, and the new color photography, you know, that was just at the point where individuals could, if you were skilled, you know, kind of play with your own developing and all. So I did a little bit of photography when I was a freelance journalist but just really, really don't know a lot about how a camera works. So it was really fascinating to just read again about, you know, how does a simple camera work and how does color photography work? So that's basically where it came from. And then just also the idea of mystery, you know, sort of the ways that truth can sort of be bent or, you know, see things from different angles. And Right. It was a great metaphor. And it's also such a wonderful example of what your protagonist, Amy Stilwell, does. She has such a unique backstory. Explain to readers how you came up with her backstory, which I think is wonderful because it, a lot of people don't understand, especially the historic aspect of orphans, essentially. Right. You know, there's so many great World War II novels out there, so many, and with women protagonists. So many fabulous ones. I'd read several recently where, you know, women were doing these fabulous things with, you know, decoding and all kinds of things. But I didn't want to, you know, copy someone else's idea. And I just wanted to learn something new. And I was just looking at different sort of things women did in World War II and was intrigued with photography and what went on and just kind of fell down the chute of learning more about the whole world of reconnaissance pilots. And those were all men, but, you know, this early technology of literally bolting a camera to the bottom of a plane, and then these guys would fly really low and try to get pictures. And then 
these pictures had to be interpreted because they were just kind of a mess. And women, and it's kind of for a sexist reason that the generals thought women would be good at this, but they, there are several great quotes where these generals were saying, well, you know, women are good at sitting still and focusing on a task for long periods of time. And so it was kind of funny, but, you know, there were a lot of women who were these very skilled photographic interpreters in World War II. One really famous one, Constance Babington Smith in England really made a name for herself and did you know, really probably saved tens of thousands of lives by things she saw, but they had to be able to see literally, it was very important to notice sort of what changed, you know, what is there that wasn't there yesterday or last week, you know, that kind of thing. Because if you're just looking at a bare field, but then suddenly the next week when the reconnaissance pilot comes back, there's some trees there in a field, you know, trees don't grow. So clearly maybe that's hiding um, weapons, you know, that maybe they're stockpiling weapons there, maybe they're building weapons there, whatever, um, that's probably the camouflage. And so just these tiny things like the length of a cigarette butt, you know, they would have to notice, oh, this means something, this has changed. And so I'm just fascinated by that. So Amy Stilwell, as you rightly say, was a photographic interpreter. So she's been trained to notice the tiniest little changes. And um, I feel that because she ended up as an orphan, or in a place where children were left when their parents had other issues and had to leave them. I got the feeling that she was always an observer, and that kind of served her well in the war. Was that true? Yes, that's a great insight. I think, you know, anytime you feel sort of on the outside looking in, I know a lot of writers were sick as kids or were such big readers, they were not playing softball with the other kids or whatever. And I was one of those kids, both sick a lot and always wanted to read instead of playing kickball. Um, but, you know, any, I think anytime you're sort of on the outside looking in, it does, it makes you learn to observe and learn to catch the nuances. And anytime you're quiet, you know, and you're right, that's a, also a big part of how she notices things other people don't notice. You have set the book in the years following World War II. What about that period sung to you? You know, it's easy to think of that era as just all jubilation and everybody's out in the streets celebrating. And, you know, to some extent, of course, it was that, especially initially. And of course, the ads are all, you know, the clothes go big and the cars go bright colors and, and there's a lot of spending going on. But there's a lot of pain going on, too. You know, it's right before the 60s. So you've got people coming from this war era where women were out working and were given tremendous freedom to be doing things that were really meaningful and important. And suddenly women are, you know, kind of locked down back into a certain role. You have lots going on in terms of race or sexuality or, you know, just different roles where Things were not openly talked about in, in lots of cases, but there were still these currents and people trying to figure things out and have conversations. So I think I was fascinated by that in ways where you have these tensions where there are secrets and there are, to me, that's in some ways more fascinating than the 60s when, you know, everybody's kind of talking about it and protesting and I'm enough of a contrarian, I guess. I find it interesting to look at an era that we think of as kind of that old sitcom happy days or something, you know, where there's a lot more going on than that. You know, there's a lot of um, uh, 
Well, internal strife for one. Internal strife, totally. And of course, you know, here they are, you know, just right out of World War II. And then suddenly you have the Cold War and all the fears about Russia. And um, you also mentioned McCarthy, which I thought was very apt, considering it is a small town with a lot of secrets. But it's sort of a reflection of the bigger world outside of Pelican Co. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I loved that. I created a fictional town, but it's based pretty heavily on Kennebunkport, Maine. And I love Kennebunkport's being close enough to Boston that there's this sense of being part of that wider world of Boston in a sense. It's very much its own place and very much Maine and very much a little bitty coastal village. But this sense that not far away, there's all this going on with this young John Kennedy and, you know, lots going on there politically. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I also loved how the villagers who had not grown up there, like the Jamaican sculptor Kayla Clark and the Bostonian Ian O'Leary, they are openly accepted, but everybody knows, you know, there's always that little bit of, if you didn't grow up here, you're different, which, you know, everybody has. And if you did grow up there, everybody knows your business. So, <laughs> so these people walk in and obviously Ian doesn't want anybody to know his business. At the same time, the sculptor is an open book. She's who she is and what you see, and she's loving and just, she's just happy to be there. Right. I love the way you created a world, you know, a little mini world where that can coincide with the people who push back against change, especially change in their own village. Right. Because you do, you have this larger turmoil going on in terms of change. And then within the village, you're absolutely right. That sort of a microcosm of the beautiful things about a small town, that everyone's there and, and on the downside, they know your business. On the upside, they show up for you if you're in trouble, and or at least you hope they do. And if they don't, what does that mean and what's going on? I've always been fascinated by kind of the closed room or sort of closed village sort of mysteries of, you know, that feeling of claustrophobia, but in a good way. Like, okay, it's, it's all right here. And uh, it's not just some sort of global something. It's these villagers right here and things happen. And now we're all looking at each other going, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> what happened? Who's, who's got the secrets and what's going on here? So the um, themes that I saw in the book, one was obviously abandonment, especially its effect on a child. Mm. But there's also the theme of redemption. Explain how this drives both Amy and, for lack of a better name, Tom. <laughs> well done to avoid any spoilers. Yes. You know, I think I'm just always fascinated. I love the um, novels of Louise Penny and the fact that they're more why done it than who done it. And I'm just fascinated by the psychology behind people. And I'm thinking of a couple of people in my extended family who grew up in the same situation. And we're siblings and kind of turned out pretty differently. And, you know, what is it about certain people facing very hard circumstances? For some of us, it makes us resilient and makes us like the shibby Travis character want to just wrap our arms around everyone. Everybody's welcome. And for others, it hardens us, you know, and makes us bitter and makes us want to draw lines and keep people out. And I'm just fascinated by that, you know. It's one of the fun things, as you well know, about being a writer, you get to kind of live in someone else's head for a while and 
try to feel what would that be like if you were abandoned as a child? What would that feel like if you really thought your mother left you on the side of the road? Or if you really thought your father couldn't make time for you from his busy life? Those kinds of things. What does that do to a child? Right. The damage that it does is just incredible. It's a great period piece. It's a great place and time, but tied around a mystery. And the mystery immediately involves Amy because she happens to save someone's life, but the person that she saves immediately disappears. But she, being the person who she is with a background that she has at looking at clues, you know, the very first thing that she notices is the person whose life she saved drives a Bentley. And that's a very expensive car. Even back then, it was a very expensive car. And um, obviously, that's always on the top of her mind because it's a small town. Who is driving the Bentley? Mm -hmm. So did you envision it first as a, I want to set my story here? Or did you envision it as, this is a mystery and this would be a great place to put a mystery or I need a place like this to have this particular mystery come to me. I'm always fascinated with what is the germ of the seed that an author gets that says, this is the plot I need to write. I'm always fascinated by that too. In this case, I was looking for a town and I looked at lots of West Coast towns. I'm in LA a good bit, but a small town, more village sized or in the South but I really wanted four seasons, four distinct seasons, in case we decide to do more, set in other seasons, more like any sequels to this. And just that distinct sense of this being a particular time of year. And I, I wanted it small enough that everybody knew everybody and that anyone who was a stranger clearly stood out as a stranger. And the whole Bentley thing, I kept picturing Um, I lived in Boston for years and was up in Maine a lot and just loved that coast and the rockiness of it and the harbors and when the mist comes in and the harbor buoys and that very mysterious haunting sound or the call of the loons. So I wanted it to start out with that sort of mysterious sense and that mournful call of the loon, like someone's missing. And in doing research about the era, going through and trying to familiarize myself with the cars and the clothing and all that. And I totally went down a rabbit hole of, you know, gorgeous cars of the era um, and had to restrain myself because this is a small village where people don't make a lot of money mostly. But the cars from that era, you know, the really luxury, just the curves and the colors and oh my gosh. But yeah, this maroon Bentley is just a knockdown gorgeous car. And I just kept picturing, you know, he was driving that. And I'm always fascinated by trains. They're often trains and novels. So that was kind of an early image I had in my head. So I very often seem to start with a sense of place. I have a daughter. I have three, um, really four kids. But one of them accuses me of kind of mapping an entire model around someplace I would like to vacation in the future. <laughs> it's kind of a fair accusation, but excuses to go back to Maine since I don't live in Boston anymore. But yeah, I think I was just sort of haunted by the idea of, you know, this little town sort of wrapped in the tourists have gone home and it's still the last of the beautiful fall. You have the gorgeous leaves, but they're just, it's the end of that season and snow is coming and there's this kind of insulation from the outside world. Just the townies. (laughs) Just the townies, totally. Yep. I'm in awe of your academic background and your professional studies that have been around the topic of race relations. 
especially now more than ever, I think it's one that is in need of open discussion. One thing that really struck me was how you, I think I read it in your bio, that you were watching your mom cry as she was watching Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral on television. And I know it had a profound effect on you. Was that what tilted you toward viewing the world in a bigger way and how hopefully we can all learn to live together in it? There are a lot of stories from my childhood. I I was born in Washington, D.C., right in the heart of the city, but moved at age five. So grew up in East Tennessee. And if you and I had days, I could spend one story after another. But there were a number of sort of light bulb moments as a kid and a teenager of realizing, wow, the town I grew up in was a genuinely, um, if you were a middle class white kid, sweet place where people had your back and people showed up for other people. And But there are a number of experiences where I kind of got kicked out of that illusion that it was that way for everyone. When I was 16, a Sri Lankan family moved to our little town. Our town was up on top of a mountain in East Tennessee, and they had a daughter with whom I became good friends, and we hung out together. And in fact, my first novel was kind of therapy of sort of writing about that experience. But, you know, just having my eyes open to, okay, there are things going on here that I might not see as a middle-class white chick. And um, to kind of try to learn early to listen to other people and to, you know, how do we all try to deal more compassionately and listen to each other's stories and try to be not defensive, you know, and try to try to do better. And sometimes I'll have friends kind of laugh about, you know, why don't you just write one of, one of these uh, good beat reads where everybody's kind of the same and it, you know, and then you don't have to worry about possibly offending someone or saying that, you know, but I don't know, just the way my mind works. That's just to me, part of why you write is trying to understand other people and understand what makes us all more loving and open and welcoming and what makes some people not and what kind of fears drive people to do what they do. And anyway, thanks for noticing that because that is kind of an ongoing theme in a lot of my books where, as I said, partly, you know, especially early on, just trying to figure out my own past of kind of things that I viewed as, oh, what a sweet place where I would then learn. The dirty little secret. Exactly. Yeah, it's funny. I grew up in the South and my parents were both Puerto Rican. I was born in Atlanta, but they were born on the islands and had moved, you know, because it's a commonwealth, you can move freely into the States and did so at young ages when they were younger. So they, you know, my dad got transferred. He got transferred down to Atlanta before I was born. And, you know, at that point, we're talking about the 60s now. There weren't a lot of Latinx in Atlanta at that time. So I thoroughly, when I saw that you also lived in Tennessee, it sang to me that we could have been friends, you know, <laughs> just by just by your whole, you know, how you make the world a bigger place in your books. That to me is a, a plus in any book I'm reading, especially when I'm at the beach. So your friends Aww. need to think that, hey, I learned something new here, or I opened my mind a bit. And I think that's always a wonderful thing when you pick up a book is to open your mind a bit. And I noticed you were from Atlanta because that's where all my extended family's from. I'm like, oh, she could be a kindred spirit. (laughs) Our last house was in Ansley Park and we loved being right in the city. But I also grew up in Decatur and in Marietta. So, Ah. you know, 
I know the area well. <laughs> right. My brother lives in Decatur. What what is it they say oh. here? Mayberry meets Berkeley. <laughs> that is that is so perfectly true. So perfectly true. Right. Um, I want to ask, are you gonna bring Amy back? I see her as being that she could be a series because of her great ability to solve mysteries. How do you feel about that? I would love to. I would love to. I think she has a lot of room for growth. She has her own, like all of us, right? She has her own damage and things she needs to work through. And But I would love to continue to grow her character and some of the other villagers in town. And there are a number of things that um, some of Shippy Travis's background that are just kind of barely touched on. There's some secrets from her past that um, she's from Texas, as you may remember. And I used to live in Texas for a short time and just things that you try to drop in there. I was talking with a friend the other day, a historical novelist about those books that you would love to become the first of a series, but you don't know. So you have to write it as a standalone, but you try to weave some things in there that are sort of loose threads that you hope you could go back and pick up on for a next book. So is that a maybe, Joy? Oh, yes. I, you know, I would love to do that. I would love to do that. So I'm, I was just the other day kind of spinning out some ideas for, you know, how you do the what if, what if she this? And so I'm sure you play that game all the time with your characters. I do. I do. And um, I'm hoping that your publisher agrees with me <laughs> that it could be a wonderful series because I would certainly, I love her. Um, I love the pain that she comes from. I love the world you've built around her. Oh my God, you know, Shebby alone is a world in herself, but she is such a strong support of everyone in the book. And of course, there's going to be a lot of heartache throughout your books as you've done in the past. So that I think is also a drawing point. We don't want our mysteries to be too light too beach ready. We want them to be, as you've done, layered with great characters, a plot that you don't know where it's going to go until it takes you there, which I really loved, and a great voice, a great author's voice. Oh, thanks for all those things. I feel like we're all learning. I don't know about you, but I always feel like someone hit reset with the beginning of each novel. Like, here I am a beginner all over again, (laughs) trying to figure out how to write a novel. And, you know, and especially, I know you write thrillers and trying to figure out how much to reveal so that the reader doesn't have that fun surprise spoiled, but also so they aren't going, well, where the heck did that come from? You know, so trying to walk that line to me, that's just so much fun. When you and I are sitting, you know, alone in our, you know, with our laptops, wherever we are, kind of trying to figure these puzzles out ourselves. But yeah, part of the privilege of getting to be a writer and and part of the times when we just pull our hair out, right? <laughs> I think what... I got an email from a writer friend today. Her first book comes out in um, in kind of winter, spring. And I got an email saying, it's like, what on earth? Why did we choose this profession? Like, what were we thinking? <laughs> so. Well, your readers are thinking, thank God she did. Oh, you're awesome. <laughs> Joy Jordan Lake's A Bend of Light is in Amazon and bookstores everywhere. This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur.